Katia Du Diallo is a businesswoman, author, social activist, speaker, a gemologist, and a mother. She's also the founder and president of the Amadou Diallo Foundation, named after her eldest son who, on February 4th of 1999, was killed when four plainclothes NYPD officers discharged their weapons a total of 41 times, striking Amadou 19 of those times, resulting in his immediate death. In 2002, all four officers were acquitted of second-degree murder charges when they claimed that by reaching for his wallet to present identification, Amadou caused them to be frightened for their lives. In 2003, Katiudu Diallo wrote a memoir, My Heart Will Cross This Ocean, My Story, My Son, Amadou. Katiudu Diallo, welcome to the well. Thank you for having me on the show. It's absolutely our pleasure. Um, I'll just kick things right off with with the book, which I have to say is beautifully written. What was your primary reason for wanting to write down your story and Amadou's story? Um, when Amadou was killed on February 4th, 1999, he was in New York City two and a half years living there. He came to America to work hard and save money for college. And uh, he was doing just everything right and was so excited. I remember our last phone call, I was in Guinea, in Africa, on January 31st, 1999. When he called me with great news, he was so excited. He said, Mom, I finally saved enough money. I'm going to college. He was so happy. So when the news broke, when they called me back home and told me about my son's tragedy, I had to cross the ocean and come to America. And one of the things that struck me was not just to lose my son, but also his story was twisted and he was portrayed as this street vendor, the insignificant African street vendor who was killed he was poor, he was uneducated according to the portrayal of Amadou. And for me as a mother, I couldn't recognize my child that way. My son was well educated. We traveled the world before him coming to America. He had been to many different countries. He was born in Liberia, grew up in Guinea, Togo, and then we moved to Asia where he went to the French International School and he was um, going there for um, many years with uh, diplomats' children. In fact, in his classroom, he was one of the first only Black in his classroom. He, he went with international um, uh, people together in school. He spoke five languages. So for me, I wanted to give him back his story. I have to say that, that your indignation about the way your son was treated in the press uh, comes across very effectively in the book. I can remember um, when this tragedy happened. I was living in New York at the time, and uh, it occurred to me thinking back that, yeah, there were the only thing that I thought I could think of when I heard the name Amadou Diallo until I read this book was 41 Shots. Yes. And uh, there, there was just really nothing about him. On that level, I, I also very much appreciated uh, how you portrayed your son. Um, and we'll get 
to more of that, but I, I wanted to start, if I could, sort of at the, at the beginning of your story. And I have to say, it may also have the best first sentence of any memoir I've ever read. You write, the first thing that you should know about me is that I have been given away many times. Wow. <laughs> that just grabs you. Uh, can you explain for our listeners why you chose to start the book like that and, and what you meant by that sentence? In our culture, it's difficult to talk about one's child, especially a son. So to paint back my son's life, I decided to start from his great-grandparents, which is my grandparents. And I started the story in the village where my, my father, who was named Amadou, I named Amadou after my father. I started the story there because he was the, one, the first one to be sent to school when he was a young boy. And because of that, so that people, before we know, before you met Amadou, you had met his, his ancestors, you have met his parents, and through my life, then you come to know my child. And in the end, by the time you come to when Amadou was killed in New York City, you have met him and you have actually discovered who he was through his family roots and through his culture, through his anecdotes that I shared in the book. Um, that will be so sorry that Amadou, you feel like Amadou belongs to you also. And that is a humanity story. My story in the beginning, like you mentioned, I was given many, way, many times the first thing people should know about me. That's real. When I was just three days old, my father, who was going through mental challenges, and culturally, men love to have sons and daughters. And my mother dreamt when she was pregnant of me, she dreamt that she, was, she had like a big celebration and she was giving uh, like accolades and some decorations. And he, she told my father and my father was excited, expecting that he would have a son. And when I was born, it turned out to be the third girl in the family. My father was also challenged mentally. He picked up the baby, and there was a French woman who was working at that hospital, and he handed the baby to the, to the, to the doctor and said, take the baby. I gave you my child. My mother actually saved me because she came running behind her and saying, my, my husband is not in his right mind. Give me back my child. That was the first time I was giving away. And then uh, after that, at just 13, just my birthday of shy away from the 14th birthday, I was given also to be married. So I have given away many times. This is why I started the book that way. My life has been a challenge. And I always say, maybe God somehow Knowing that my destiny would become a challenge, I would be facing the world like when I lost Amadou and really struggling with new continent and new culture and new politics and everything else that I not even was exposed to. Maybe it was a good thing for my father to try to shake me when I was just three days old to prepare me for what yet to come. 
too often, you know, you hear the story about, you know, a young person who's lost their life, you know, f for whatever reason, but in this case, tragically to the, you know, police officer, police officer shooting. Um, and we feel the tragedy, you know, as, as if it was confined to just that, that life that is lost. But something that's so, that comes across so powerfully in this book is that it's not just a, a young man's life, it's the, it's the love that was invested in, in, in him, his, his heritage, uh, as you say, and just the, the significance that that life played to so many people. And the thing that really stopped me was, and you're going to have to help me pronounce it, uh, I'm reading from the book now, uh, when a young person leaves home from Guinea, he becomes the Seti? The Seti. Sete, yes, uh, he is the explorer and the envoy carrying the family name to unseen places. That was so heartbreaking to read. When a person leaves home from Guinea, he becomes the Sete. He is the explorer and the envoy, carrying the family name to unseen places. In the villages, towns, and cities, too, they will talk about him, imagining his triumphs and new riches. On his return, they will gauge his manner of speaking or of entering a room, the ease of his work, perhaps a satisfaction that shows in his eyes to determine if his travels have given him the bearing of a successful man. Beyond his conquest, they wait for the tales he will carry back. Even the man who had not filled his pocket with gold can still be a witness. For years, he can tell people what happened when finally he stepped onto strange land. What surprised or scared him, lifted or saddened him, what he had discovered for them. Amadou was the setter for his brothers, sisters, cousins, friends, and for me, who anticipated a magnificent return. He returned a silent body with a tale untold. If there is anything as cruel as the taking of a man's life, it is the taking away of his story, the particulars that make him holy. The mother who dreams that she can undo any harm that comes to her child, dreams fruitlessly. The one last thing she can do is to try to give her child back his story, the greatest and least obligation she can fulfill. It's such a, there's so much hope in all of that. There's so much positivity. There's so much, uh, there's so much optimism in that. And for it to end in that way, I mean, it's, it's, it's always awful, but you just, it, not, not, not just in that place. The fact, there's a, the, the fact that there's a word for it, sete, sete. <laughs> the explorer, the one who, you know, sometime when I go out to speak, I tell people, you meet a man or a woman going to a different continent, a different country. Don't just look at them for the individual. That 
person is carrying their family stories. Just like the soldier who's going to, to war, you carry everything. You carry pictures of back home, you know, your family, and you are connected to your family. It's like many, many hopes and dreams of the whole family is in that person. And we applaud and we celebrate their success and we celebrate their their wealth when they achieve to when they had something um, they discover anything is for them. In fact, that's the part that I wanted to read on the book. That's the part I I chose to read because um, it's really uh, when you when Amadou was killed, it's like uh, the whole world has collapsed for me. And what a loss that we still fail even 21 years later. And he was uh, such a special, generous human being. He was an old soul. Yeah. So um, if, if you today, I published a book in 2003, and today we are talking about this book. You have read it and you have really been touched by the story. I, I, I have to say that I have achieved something because I want to reach people's heart. I want people to read the story to understand um, the death of the the death of uh, this tragedy, what this has caused, and many families have had the same pain, but it's difficult to translate it. This is why. You know, I was uh, fortunate to have a the chance to travel with my the person who helped me write the book back home, and I don't just tell him we will go and say this is the place, this is the person, this is, and so it was so genuinely everything was just natural. Uh, how we we conducted the uh, the research and everything else. Um, It's so, so, so much deep. So deep. I particularly loved the memory that you share in the book of taking your children to the beach and uh, dozing off for a few minutes and waking up and there's Amadou on a horse. (laughs) (laughs) He had gone and, and rented a horse. And then the way you described watching him ride that horse and realizing that through his um, assuredness of his decisions and the way he wanted to encounter the world that you, your boy had started to become a man. In fact, I had this tiny video of it because I purchased a camera and I had a capture little bit of it. You can see tiny Amadou on that horse. And that is, uh, that is an image that I always come to because whenever there's a tragedy when there's a shooting case people always remember me and sometimes they want me to speak and I always go back and connect to Amadou's spirit and reconnect to his spirit and I had those memories that I hold on to we were blessed with uh, the precious moment we spent together with Amadou's siblings 
when you get um, like wealth, some people will think about saving, about uh, investing, about doing stuff like that. My investment was the joy that I had with my children. You know, it was it was amazing to hear your story. Um, you are a self-made businesswoman who demanded your own education, uh, became a gemologist, uh, and then launched a very successful import-export business and cared for your children and sent them to the best schools all, all over the world. I, I, Amadou lived in, not obviously Guinea, but uh, Bangkok, Singapore, and then ultimately... New York. Um, not, not many kids get that kind of worldview growing up, um, which, which makes it all the sadder uh, that he was uh, so pigeonholed in the press. As you say in the book, that phrase that bothered you the most, the unarmed street vent, West African street vendor. And to suggest that he was you know, on armed West African street vendor was to suggest that, like, that his natural state was armed, right? That Abadou lived in the Bronx. Maybe those people are carrying guns and waving guns everywhere. No, because when I, I even talk in the book saying that you cannot call the baker who was killed, the unarmed baker was killed. So the stereotypical uh, portrayal of uh, the minority community, whenever they are involved in police in, uh, interaction, is so negative and so dismissive. Just like uh, they they are like a high crime high crime neighborhood area, and portrayal of the these communities. People live there. People have children there. People go to stores and grocery and barbershop and everything else. Amadou used to play with uh, the people in the neighborhood, uh, soccer. And uh, I even retell his little, uh, retell um, the life he lived in the Bronx a little bit so that the reader could actually imagine uh, themselves, you know, in that neighborhood because it's not that scary place. It's not that violent place. They just use that as an excuse because had those officers stopped and gave time, they would understand that Amadou live in that building. They would understand that Amadou posed no threat. Unfortunately, people are quick to read the headlines and move on. I knew that time since the beginning, I crossed the ocean and I came to New York. I knew it was wrong and I told the public that I'm not, revengeful, but I think something needs to be done to prevent this from happening again. Unfortunately, after years and years, how many more victims have we had? How many thousands of people have been killed? So we all have to work hard and advocate for racial equity, advocate for police accountability, advocate for, for um, to eliminate police misconduct because we need to save the future generation. While describing your son's death, you, you avoided including the accepted specifics of the event as provided by those officers. And I was very curious about that. But then later you, you include those details alongside 
very troubling claims in the press that said things like Amadou was uneducated and could barely understand English. Uh, they called you poor and, quote, from the villages. And then you suggest a kind of American naivete culture when you write, and this is a quote, details from nameless police officials were offered with the specter of absolute truth unquestioned. Yeah, can you talk a little bit more about about how you're saying that the 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 police got to set the tone of how this was seen? You know, the police has been viewed by everyone like they are not human. When they tell a story, you cannot scrutinize it. You just have to accept it. And from the police point of view, Amadou was the one who posed the threat. From the police point of view, he, he made them afraid for their own lives. He was, first of all, where he lived in his own vestibule. But they have everything to protect them. They have their cars. They have their guns. And they have, they have four big men. Amadou was just 5.6 feet tall, and he was just 156 pounds. And these officers could have taken the time, and the people believed their version of the, of the story, that Amadou posed the threat, that he was about to, they thought he was going to shoot them, that they, his wallet looked like a gun. So I, I, I wanted people to put themselves in Amadou's shoes. He was the one who saw them coming right at him. He was the one who saw four big men riding their car and, and jumping out of their car with their guns drawn and coming right at him. He was the one who was violently approached and violently killed without any time to, to, to question him to find out who he was that in fact he lived there. And the other argument was he looked like a serial rapist they were looking for. That was also acceptable because anyone, any right-minded people, if you read in the media that a man who used to rape women has been killed, you would say, well, or, you know, you say, no, they're doing a good job. They're trying to find the criminal. But the last rape, caused by that man, the, the claim that looked like Amadou was nine months prior, nine months prior to that night. And people lose track of that. Some of the uh, details that came out in the book, I, I don't remember reading anything about in the press, such as I, I was stunned to learn that after the shooting, other police officers went into his apartment, upturned all of his belongings and asked his roommates if he had a gun. And and then and then when when they responded that he didn't, they said they asked if Amadou had any enemy enemies. Like I mean, that strikes me as a very strange question coming from someone who knows exactly who the killers were in this instance. Yeah. And they took him. They took the roommate also for hours at the prison to ask him questions. And he was like, "Thank God, the police will help me find Amadou's killer." Little did he know that they didn't tell him that the police was involved. And they keep on asking him, did Amadou have any fight with somebody before? This was, this, was, uh, this was Amadou's roommate? Yeah, Amadou's roommate. So the, the four officers who killed Amadou 
were protected by other officers coming in and pretending that there's a crime here. We want to know why. And they ransacked their bedroom. They put everything upside down, looking for things and asking Abdul Abdurrahman, his name, his, his roommate name, that Amadou have any enemy, that he has any gun. So you see, that was some details that people don't know. Uh, the witnesses that heard the shots testify during the trial, but they, they, their testimony did not come into account because more often in minority communities, some of them they will be discredited because they will claim that they have done something wrong before on their record. So the whole criminal justice system is so hard with, with the minority people, especially for people in the Bronx. And when the trial was moved in Albany, uh, that was another blow. Uh, people have very different experience dealing with the law enforcement uh, than those people in the Bronx. It's so different. It was like moving the trial to another country completely. And Amadou was blamed for his own death. They said him the movement he, he made and uh, the wallet he took out that caused them to be heightened and really take a action to, to, to shoot. Yeah, you, you write, at one point you wrote, stories about the shooting could not accommodate the picture of someone selling goods on the street who hoped to one day do something better. The faceless, hunched over, soda-selling street vendor, rooted to the sidewalk in good weather and bad, was someone more expendable than the actual young man, college-bound, a world traveler. Most misleading of all, to call Amadou unarmed was to suggest the inverse, that his natural state was armed. By taking this fact that he did not have a gun and turning it into a label for him, the police were given the right to define Amadou and the light in which he would be seen. When the baby came out, the doctor held it by the feet upside down, and I felt strange because the baby did not cry. The baby came out in a light coating, as if in water and cotton. At first, I thought my baby was transparent. I strained my eyes to look harder, and I realized my baby came, came out in a bag, a very rare thing I discovered. When angels come back, they appear this way, my mother told me later. The doctor rubbed the bag away from my baby. And that is when my son Amadou gave out his first cry. He was a gentle boy. My son Amadou could not swim and feared water altogether. As a child, and even as he grew, he bathed as to avoid showers. Water running over him made him anxious. I would take him to Sugar Beach, where the sun really looked and felt like sugar. It was fine and white, and it made you feel rich just to rest on it. The water was calm. I do not recall many waves. His friends played freely in the ocean, while Amadou went with me to the other side of the sandbar where there was a small tide pool. He showed no fear there. 
but no mischief either. He liked to stand out with his arm folded and look out separated from the sea by the dunes. He could pretend that he, Amadou Wata, up to his calves, was the king of all that surrounded him. Remembering him now, I can still sense the serenity he commanded. He was a boy of unusual beauty. These did not come from one place, nor did it overpower you. I can tell you he was small. He had small hands, slight shoulders, a face that did not impose itself on you. His eyes were kind, and they were still for a boy. Settled, I think his eyes were settled in his face in a way you don't often find with a child. He did not take on the wall so much as he consented for the wall to come to him. He had kind, merciful eyes, and yet what they saw I really do not know. When he was very young and I was away from him, he had a bad time with chicken pox. His teeth turned black and I was still a girl myself. I didn't understand and I thought he was going to die because I had left him alone. And so I cried while praying. He was just a baby going through what he had to go through. But I thought he would leave me right then. I was sure I had returned too late, but he improved within a day of seeing me. And after he never got sick, at least he never had the sore throat or the fever to worry anyone too much. He found sleep easily, but nightmares would encircle him. He might not wake, but almost every night I heard him and came to him. Amadou, why are you talking in your sleep? What are you saying? What do you want to tell me? I'll rub his hand, and in a while his breathing would settle down until I could hear it only a little. I was a child myself, barely 16, when he was born. I could not have told you what I was doing. Married with a baby, could not have told you who I was, but I knew how to console Amadou. I would rub his hands, smooth the bridge of his nose. I would put a fingertip to his lips to let his jumbled dream talk through, talk floor through my arms, my chest, and my aching heart. That's what I told him. It's your mom. I'm here. Give your troubles to me. can't help but think what a very different world we would all live in if that had been what everyone learned about Amadou you know before the police before the media had had reduced and lied and smeared and said what they said what a different world it would be if 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 all of these victims and he wasn't the first or the last from from Guinea, uh, from I mean specifically from Guinea. It says uh, from the book, I was shaken to discover that Amadou had become the thirty ninth young Guinean man to be flown home from America in a coffin in the last five years. Yes, and after Amadou, so many, so many more. And how many stories mm. were not told? 
uh, how many stories were rewritten. And this is a question I have for you. I understand. I mean, it's it's terrible, but I under I can see uh, the law enforcement motivation for telling a story. You would think the media would do a better job, would counter that, would do something a little, at least a little more complete, fight it in some way. Did you, did you feel like the media just uh, bought everything that the police said and just reprinted it? Or did they do any investigating on their own? Or did anyone ever, did anyone ask you? I think that um, the media has not perhaps done it on purpose just to to do the caricature on Amadou. I think that's the culture of the media. They jump from story to story. They don't mm. actually take time. In fact, I was very surprised to get some of the media reaction about the book. I remember going to my book tour and one of the interviewer, I forgot it was, uh, I think in LA. And I, I remember the lady asking me, why are you doing this? I told her what, what I'm doing. She said the book. And she, was, she showed the protest images and people holding signs, 41 shots, you know, Amadou Diallo. I said, I appreciate everything. But let me tell you, this is not Amadou's story. That's why I'm doing this. I said, have you opened the book? Have you read anything in this book? And she was like, she was expecting that my book was about bashing the police just to bash the police. I told her, no, open the book and read. I want people to know my child for his humanity. And I want people to understand how reporting, how if the power of the story can destroy somebody's image. And it's difficult to recapture that. What, you've been doing, uh, what is your relationship now with law enforcement? Have you been working? You've, you've worked with them, correct? Yeah, in fact, uh, on the board of the Amadou Diallo Foundation, we have one uh, retired policeman that served with us. Uh, he's very instrumental in contributing to debates and dialogues about policing because we believe that uh, just to criticize is not effective. We have to be involved in some measure through the Amadou Diallo Foundation to see what else can be. I'm not expert, but we have one retired officer on board and he is doing a great job representing the foundation. I think my favorite part of the book is, strangely, also my least favorite part of the book. You do such a magnificent job of portraying the absolute chaos that smacked you in the face when you got off the plane after your son's death in New York City and how just everyone was trying to get a piece of you to help you shape their story or to to let you be their lead counsel and it 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 was just so depressing to see so much just naked positioning um it was it was very overwhelming very overwhelming i have to say because um 
here I was coming in, um, arriving unprepared with the outpouring support and also people wanting every piece of me just landed. And all I wanted to do was to go on the site where my son lived and died. But I was just one woman facing many different situations. They would say, she can talk to the press. She cannot talk to the press. This is how she's going to dress up. This is how she's going to go. I say, hey, wait a minute. Just stop. Everyone just stop and let me be. I cannot deal with everything. And lawyers who want to go and represent me. And the city also wanted to control me. They took me from the aircraft. As soon as the plane landed, I heard my name being called on the, on, on the, on the microphone. Mrs. Yellow, Mrs. Yellow, please identify yourself. I said, okay. I came forward. They said, oh, are you alone? Okay, you're coming with us. We're going to take care of you. My country government has already contacted my ambassador to receive me at the airport. I was aware of that. But then the city came and said to her, no, we need to take care of her. So she was there. I grabbed her. I said, what's going on? She said, no, 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 don't worry. They, don't, they won't let me take you, but don't worry. Nothing will be, you know, you'll be fine. They wanted to put me in a hotel and take care of my expenses. I said, you know, my instant told me, I don't want to accept that because they said the police killed my child and I want to understand more and I want to be, I don't want to owe anyone something. I want to understand what happened to my child. That's all I'm here for. So I rejected the help from the city. I left the, that place, the hotel that they put me in. I, I don't even know sometimes when I look at a few archives that was covered on my arrival and everything. I just look at it and I said, this woman has been through a lot. Mm. I don't know how, I don't know how I made it through because it was hard. It's, it's been reported that um, the mayor at the time, Rudolph Giuliani, asked to meet with you and that you ultimately declined. Uh, is that true? And if so, what was uh, the reason behind that decision? Um, that is true. I declined to meet with him because apparently he don't want to meet some of my people who supported me. He wanted to pick and choose who he's going to meet with. Really? Like, like who did, who did he not want to meet with? Um, he, the black community, you know, leaders, um, in the community were criticizing him about Amadou's death and, uh, some of them asked to meet with him. I don't remember the names, but he said he was not ready to meet with them at that time. And um, so it, it was hard. It was like walking on eggs. So I, I wasn't sure about me being in the middle of a political fight. So I declined. When we were taking the body home, because I arrived in New York and we spent like, a, I think like five days before we traveled back with the, to do the funeral, uh, Barry Amadou. Upon the trip, I saw one of the news um, 
newspaper and I saw the headline, uh, Giuliani work was quoted with the commissioner saying that they will change the type of bullet that they use killing my child. That why people are complaining 41 shots is because they keep on shooting because Amadou did not fall. He didn't fail quickly. So they want to change the kind of bullet. That was something I will never forgive him for. I have not even buried my son, and he's talking about changing the kind of bullet they use. I was insensitive. So I didn't have good feelings about meeting him. Yeah, I wouldn't either. Yeah. It is a mother's noble conceit to believe she has the power to take her child's suffering and do it for him. It is not much more than a superstition that allows her to get through those nights when she stares out in the dark and wonders how it will work out. That part of the night belongs to the mother, listening to the sound of the house, in quiet reverence for things she cannot see and for nightmares that are not hers. She may want to, but she cannot step into them. The blinking lights of her child's bad dreams expose dangers that only he can confront, paths towards survival that he must choose. In the Futa Jalon, when a child loses a tooth, there is a new tooth fairy planting coins under her pillow. It becomes the mother's tooth. She holds it tight, and throw it over the roof of the house at night, sending with it a secret wish for her child. It is a flare which she prays God will see. That is how a mother lives her days, sending out messages and helplessly waiting for the replies. Beautiful. Uh, I um, I really only I have one other question, and that is, I, I it's not a fair question, but I'm gonna ask it anyways, <laughs> and you can tell me if it's not fair. Uh, of all your memories of your son, what is your favorite? Wow. That is absolutely difficult. You want me to tell you just one favorite? It can be whatever comes to mind. Okay. I can tell you one thing that I always, when I remember that, I smile. Because Amadou was very shy, naturally. I remember one day he came home and a girl followed him home. That was so funny. <laughs> this girl, she's a Thai girl. There's a place, a big uh, mall called Mabung Crown. And Amadou went there on Saturday afternoon. And this girl saw Amadou and was crazy, following him and said, no, I love you. I want you. And Amadou said, no, leave me alone. He said, no. <laughs> then they came home. And 
I came from the office because I work on Saturday in the morning and in the afternoon I came home. I saw Amadou sitting down and this girl sitting and Amadou watching every every step I took to go in the house. He's like this with his big eyes, like wondering what can I say? And I was so like uh, pushing jam my laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, he said to the girl, don't touch me. Don't come closer. Don't touch me. <laughs> and then he said to me, I already made my prayers just to impress me, letting me know that he's innocent. And I'll say, okay, I'm going to do it like, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> How old was he? That was so funny. <laughs> How old was he then? Um, he was about maybe 19 but he's he's really he's not into girls. <laughs> that was funny, and uh, that's that's my you know the most uh, funny story. But you know the favorite is I have so many favorites. The other one is when he asked me to give him money to buy a, a you know the razor blade. He wanted to shave his beard. <laughs> I laughed, and he's like. Why are you laughing? I said, I didn't know you had you growing bare now. He <laughs> <laughs> was becoming a man now, you know, just growing older. <laughs> yeah, he was such a such a wonderful person. Yeah. But but I did want to say uh, thank you. I I don't know how you do it. I I was looking at some um, interviews and videos and stuff of of you talking, and you, it's. Uh, it's so depressing to see how many times you've had to you've had to tell this story for other people that that your story has been a touchstone for so many similar incidents and just you know it's been over 20 years and I've just seen clip after clip after clip after clip after, after interview of you having to go through this yet again because it keeps happening again. But hopefully with someone who who pushes for the story as eloquently as you do, if that catches on, I want to see more. I want to hear more of that. I want to see more of that. Less about the, the that little incident of confusion that surrounds these incidents. Uh, I, like I said before, I think it would be a different world if more of the newspaper page more airtime was dedicated to the humanity of who this person is and who and, and who was lost in the event so thank you i just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart when you come out and see someone uh selling on the street stop and smile mm -hmm. you would just never know mm -hmm. who that person might be Every person carry their family story with them, their hopes and dreams. My son happened to be one of many. Mm -hmm. So for all humanity, I want people to stop and think about how they would like to be treated and treat anyone that way so we can have a better world.
Original is produced, recorded, and edited by Brandon Edgens and me, Hanson Mount. Theme music by Brandon based on a composition by Jonathan Myberg. Extra music for this episode provided by Daniel Birch via an attribution non-commercial 4.0 international license. Special thanks to Katia Tudialo for taking the time to sit down with us. Her memoir, My Heart Will Cross This Ocean, is available at penguinrandomhouse.com and amazon.com. You can find out more about the Amadou Diallo Foundation, their outreach work, and their scholarship program by visiting their website, amadoudiallo.org. That's A-M-A-D-O-U-D-I-A-L-L-O dot O-R-G. We'll also include a link in the show notes of this episode at our website, thewellpod.com. That's thewellpod.com. Have a great week, everyone.